we've committed the next hour to just talk about an issue that otherwise we weren't going to get to, um, which is which is this um, outward-facing reality of our churches and serving our neighbors. Um, and instead of just just broadly opening it up for questions, um, I thought I thought we'd first give give everyone who's here a chance to share just what. Um, what it's been like in their ministries. Ray, you've got, you've got so many years of history, you can just select whichever ones you'd like to share about. Um, but just, just to get us started, I'd, I'd really like to hear in, in your settings, um, what, what, have you, what have you found in terms of the manifestation of what it looks like to serve your neighbors? What does it look like in your churches? Uh, and then, and then on, and a, on a, an addendum on that, um, what have you learned? Uh, in trying to figure that out. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll start as the old guy here. Uh, I moved to Chicago in 1965 with two preschool children and my wife, and the whole city erupted in fire, smoke, and riots. Uh, it was the 60s, the civil rights movement, plus the anti-war movement came together and they hit the cities from Berkeley in the Bay Area to Watts and Englewood in California, Newark, Boston, Brooklyn, Bronx, Chicago, went up in flames, Detroit as well. I watched the evangelicals flee. I was never, I mean, Darwin, Marx, and Freud, I studied at the University of Washington. That was a stiff breeze, but nothing prepared me for the failure of my white evangelical church in the Moody Trinity Wheaton tradition of theology. And the one church in Chicago that didn't run was the Catholic Church. And I began to study um, why it is that evangelicals can't survive in cities. Um, and what I realized was we forgot the theology of place that's deeply rooted in scripture. In Genesis 22, uh, you have, uh, Genesis, sorry, you remember the ladder, Jacob's ladder, and the angels ascending and descending, and what was the place where the angels touched? What did they name that place, do you remember? Bethel. Bethel, house of God. The Hebrew doctrine of sacred space, as you trace it through scripture, is wherever God did something, they, they have a memory. Memory was critical. They build an altar there, they pile up a some rocks, something to remember that God was with them in that place. In John 1.50, where Jesus looks at Nathaniel and says, someday you're going to see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, Jesus is taking upon his person the Hebrew doctrine of sacred space. So wherever Jesus is, is at Bethel. So contrary to cutting us loose from the ancient idea of the Hebrews, he reinforces it. It takes on a Christological, in other words, we have to reclaim space. Mm -hmm. This is God's earth. Mm -hmm. And this is something that the evangelical church had forgotten. We had sacred person theology. We had sacred program theology. We didn't have sacred place theology. So that was, that was huge for me. Pastorally in the city, I, you know, who's my neighbor, I discovered that, um, what I needed to do was to accept the kingdom perspective. You know, the church isn't the end game. It's a sign of and an agent for the kingdom. The kingdom agenda is what Jesus talked about over 90 times. And um, 
what I decided to do as a, as a pastor, even beginning here in Seattle, was to go to every church in my neighborhood and stop and apologize for ignoring them. And I, I literally said, and this is my MO, I said, I owe you an apology. And they'd say, what for? I've been driving by your church. I've never stopped to thank you for your ministry in this community. And I said, I don't know if you have time now, but I can come back if this isn't a good time. But would you be willing to tell me the most important lesson you've learned about ministry in this community since you began? In my last parish, I did that to 45 churches, starting with the Catholic parish, St. Sylvester's, which had bullet holes from the Latin gang on the south side of the church and the Polish gang on the north side of the church. That church was in the middle and it stayed healthy and it was negotiating peace treaties with the Chicago Police Department and the gang structures. And I realized the Catholic Church doesn't run. When the neighborhood changes, they send the pastor to Mexico to learn Spanish or whatever the neighborhood language is, and they continue on. The, the parish is that continuation of the Hebrew doctrine of sacred space made Christologically by Christ, wherever he is becomes a sacred place. And evangelicals were throwing away real estate. We'd abandon a building where the saints have prayed for 100 years and go buy land out by a freeway interchange somewhere, like Walmart, yeah, and plop it down. And we became totally in-car rather than incarnate. Okay? Um, And no wonder we're losing the city. And... uh, I had this conversation with many people, including the Billy Graham. Uh, I worked with the Lausanne Committee for 20 years with Billy Graham and Leighton Ford and John Stott and cities and, and, you know, the Crusades, like in Chicago, I went every night. I was very involved in it, but it was all suburbanites Mm -hmm. who were now commuting back into the city to reach a city they had left and moved away from. And they come back to preach at it or to have radio stations, Christian radio or something. But, but they've pulled their kids out of the school systems, out of the parks, out of the labor unions, out of the schools. Um, out of, you know, 90, over 90% of all Christians be, in the city become Christians through relationships, not programs. And so the idea of being incarnate, being in the neighborhood, recovering the Hebrew doctrine of sacred space. uh, And I have to tell you what happened to me with these churches. When I would go call on them, they would say, Reverend Bakke, you don't owe us an apology. I said, yes, I do. I I really feel that I've neglected to thank you. We're on this team together. We all get a tax exemption from the government for being here. Our buildings are tax exempt and our donations are IRS exempt. I said, and when that was written into the US Constitution by Madison, he did it to understand that we had a social responsibility and that we should be engaged. We're, that's part of the trade-off of getting free IRS and free uh, tax exemptions from the local taxing authority in our county. So when churches take acres and acres off the tax roll for parking lots Mm -hmm. to commute into a church, 
They're sending a signal to the pagan neighbors, every one of whom is paying a higher tax because the church pays none. And you could get away with this in the past, but you can't now when Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and Sikhs are asking for the same privilege mm -hmm. for their mosques and their temples. And Americans are getting a little fed up with that, that kind of use of space. Mm -hmm. So I think there are biblical reasons, there are practical reasons. Um, the 45 churches that I visited were everything from Serbian Orthodox to Catholic and when I went into the Serbian church, I'm a church historian, so I know something about St. Sava, who founded that Serbian church in 800 AD. But I would ask them if they have a book in my language that I could read to better understand the church. And if they would give me one, that built in a follow-up. Now, the closest church to me was a pastor, Dick West, who identified himself as a Jungian Marxist. A Jungian, and now I said I know about Marx, I know about Jung. What's a Jungian Marxist? And I said, what are you preaching on these days? He said, the dreams of the Bible. Now that's, that's cool. I'd never thought about preaching the dreams of the Bible. I said, do you have a book on that? And um, he, he gave me uh, something to read. I took it home. And then a few days later, he called me. He was in the intensive care ward as a heart attack patient at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in the parish in our area. And um, I, he said, come and see me. And he said, Ray, I'm thinking about dying. Do you have any books on Revelation? I'd like to see what the end game is. So I went home and got a, three or four books um, on Revelation, went back. And then he said, would you preach in my church while I'm here? And this, this is the most liberal United Church of Christ you could imagine. This is Jonathan Edwards' church, by the way, gone to seed, UCC. But they gave us the Great Awakening. And if God is alive, the prayers of the historic UCC are still being heard, mm -hmm. even though that church may have forgotten Jonathan Edwards and where they came from. So I, I accept that call. And guess what I preached on? The dreams of the Joseph story in, Mag in Genesis 1 and 2 in Matthew 1 and 2 on the infancy narrative of Jesus. I'd never thought of that until this liberal Jungian Marxist gave me the idea. <laughs> I can't tell you the education, you couldn't pay for the education you get. If you go to the Catholic Church and say, what's the best book you've read? What, what have you found most useful about this? The Lutheran pastor, Bethel Lutheran, four blocks from my church, um, young, pastor, he said, um, come with me. He took me to the police department, 14th Police District, Shakespeare District in my community. He called to the, the desk and he said, uh, bring the book. We got a new reverend. We got to educate him. Um, the book was the previous year's calls for service in that 14th District of Chicago Police Department. 70% of the calls are for domestic violence. Mm. And he said, Ray, this is our job, not the police's job. And they know it. And this, this Lutheran had set up a call forwarding program. Every police in my region carry his card. And when the fight starts in the apartment and the, and the stuff happens, um, the blue flash cubes come from every direction.
and the police come charging into these apartment houses and say, oh, shut up, up against the wall. And then they say, you want jail or do you want the reverend? And almost everybody chooses the reverend in those circumstances and somebody calls the Bethel Church hotline and within five or 10 minutes, there's a person over there to take a deposition and the cop is saying, now you get prison unless you go and do what they say. And I learned that Paul Knudsen was building Bethel Lutheran with the police department as his assistant. I didn't, I, I have seminary degrees and I never learned that, mm. honestly. I never learned that the police are, are so harried and oppressed by the, the calls for domestic violence they don't want to put the husband in jail because the wife has to go on welfare and the kids are going to be in trouble. And so they, they desperately need some way to relate. That was a very important lesson for me from one pastor. The United Church of Christ, another one, took me to, to a school and introduced me to a school principal and said, pull the book on this community. And I discovered how many poor people live there, how many from every migrant group. He had made his relationship with the local grammar school, as they call grades one to eight in Chicago, grammar school, grade school, um, his art form, literally. And, and his church was an annex for the school. He had all kinds of programs going after school, tutoring, mentoring, because he had trust going on. When I, when I saw that, I realized that um, that I, I had so much to learn. And within a year, I had met 45 pastors or priests. They all knew me now by name. I had visited their churches to sit in the services, and occasionally I would get introduced, and when I did, I'd get up and, and say, uh, I, wa I want to tell you as a pastor how honored I am to be in your congregation today, and I want to thank you for your 102 or 120 years of ministry in this community. Thank you for welcoming me as a pastor in this church. And it transformed things. Um, pretty soon we had a clergy association going because the police needed us to come together because we, we led the city in riots and fires. We had more than 2,200 fires, oh, 1,300 fires in one year in our, our neighborhood. 400 in one summer, arson for profit, gang retaliation, all kinds of stuff. It was a war zone. And the churches were, were struggling. People were leaving. Mm. Denominations do not pre prepare pastors for this kind of an environment, as you well know. I think you, I'm hearing from you that that's sort of going on in the Calvary Chapel movement, that you're a speckled bird if you're an urban person in a movement that's by and large Costa Maker Mesa normative, mm. right? Uh, and that's true of almost every denomination. So I say, biblically, let's grapple with the theology of place. Mm -hmm. uh, politically, let's understand that in this environment where the cost of every square acre of real estate goes up, if you're building, if you're taking a church building off the tax roll in a high-priced Bay Area or a Seattle environment, you're asking all the non-Christians to pay while you don't, and that is not a good witness. 
in this day and age. So I think we are mandated by many reasons, including the great commandment about the brother, remember? Amen. Amen. Uh, and so I think that's what I've learned and I'll summarize. It, it grew up in history. Nothing challenged me so much in my life as the failure of my church mm. under the pressure in the 60s. Pastors lose it. They were leaving the city. Um, as I say, the whole Wheaton, Trinity, Moody, Fuller, the mission complex, Campus Crusade, everybody was running from LA. They were looking for real estate somewhere near Colorado Springs, I think. Everybody uh, was abandoning cities, you know. People running away from LA were running into the people running away from Chicago, somewhere near Colorado Springs. This is the way I used to put it. Um, so I think evangelicals, people who believe in scripture, have to take the scripture theology of place seriously and then and then I think living in the modern world in the reality of a post-Christian, post-Christendom, America, we have to be sensitive to the needs of people. And then I liked, Billy Graham taught me this. I asked him once, um, we both spoke back to back at Urbana one year, twi two, twice we did in 84 and 87, and we had dinner one night. And I asked him, what, what would you say to a young minister from your vast experience? And he said, uh, 40 years ago I made a vow. I would never say a negative word about any ministry, any pastor, any denomination, ever, in public. He said, even if I am right, the devil will use it to divide the body. I've decided 40 years ago to be a body builder, not a body divider. And that's when I took the cue uh, that I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to work at that. I've, Jesus prayed that we might be one. I don't mean the same. Um, I'm married to a classical pianist. Um, she has two masters and a doctorate and international worship and art and taught piano at Moody for 18 years, evangelical. She will reach people. Um, she was a pastor's wife in my Baptist church for 20 years. That was a liturgical desert for her. Um, and she is probably theologically Mennonite and, and liturgically Lutheran. And we've lived with that. And she reaches people, people who used to play in the New York Philharmonic are retiring in, our, in, the, in the North Puget Sound area. And my wife meets them and they perform concerts in our home. Um, that's a ministry. She's, the liturgical churches are reaching people some other people cannot reach. I call them fifth commandment churches. They honor fathers and mothers. I suspect this church is one of those fifth commandment churches. There's probably nobody in this church younger than 60 or 70, probably. I don't despise that. My own mom didn't have babies the last 50 years of her life. She was a bag lady at Safeway in Puyallup till she was 85, bagging groceries. And, um, and she didn't have a baby the last 50 years or so. So what good is a mother is not having babies? I hear people say this about churches. Oh, I haven't had, First Methodist Church downtown hasn't had a spiritual baby in, 
Yeah, but for 200 years, they were the biggest game in town, my friend. They did more sawdust trail evangelism than all of us put together. Uh, and if God is eternal, the prayers of those saints are still being heard. And I suspect that there are believers in those churches, and so I honor them. When I go by First Methodist, I say, Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703. He's, he's 314 years old this year. Uh, this church is not what it ought to be, but I will honor it for what it has meant to the world of missions. And I think in a city perspective, if you have this kind of view, um, first of all, you'll, you'll learn to appreciate the churches. This is the 500th year of Luther. This little congregation represents the Reformation, 1517. It's, um, I was looking through their songbook. It's um, the same one that's used in, in Wittenberg and Württemberg, Germany, and other places. I like this little tracker organ. Charming. Uh, Johann Bach dedicated all his music for organs like this to the glory of God. And there are still people who keep Luther alive 500 years later in these churches. I celebrate that. It's the body of Christ, okay? And they can't do everything, but they'll reach people you're not reaching, okay? They are, they are. maybe not quite as many as we are here on Sunday morning, but over there are 500 years. You know, I think um, God be pleased uh, they've, I think the Catholic Church is undergoing a, a reformation in our day, and they don't deserve our criticism now. I think Francis has taken a lot of heat for his reform. He's a closet Pentecostal, if you want to know the truth. He's an Argentine, and they don't know anything except Pentecostalism down there. And that's all my Pentecostal friends in Argentina think of him. They know him from his time in Buenos Aires. Uh, pray for the Catholic Church. Um, God is able to do renewal. Um, so it's not just your movement, my movement, other mm -hmm. movements. Uh, in a city, we have a polychrome church. Mm -hmm. and, and they're all able to reach some people that nobody else can reach. So celebrate that. Celebrate that. Uh, and, uh, and, and build the body. So I, my recommendation is you go around your neighborhood, find the little church, knock on the door, if anybody answers, uh, otherwise, if there's a phone number, call them up and thank them for their ministry mm -hmm. and say, you know, if, if it's possible sometime, I'd love to meet with you and just learn from you history and find out more about what you're doing, pray with you, and, and really honestly give thanks. I decided to have the police department come to my church on Sunday morning, and I, I said to the commander, would you bring all the beat cops, the people who had never who are patrolling 24 hours a day. Nobody had ever asked. No church had ever asked them. They showed up with bells on. Police cars parked all around our church. They were in worship. I interviewed the past, the, the chief, and I prayed for the officers, and then we had a, a, a potluck lunch afterwards, and the police all sat at different tables and talked to my people. After that, Whenever I walked around the neighborhood and I'd hear a screeching car, it was a cop car roaring up because they'd seen me and thanking me and they'd say, and then they started calling my church secretary saying, does the reverend do me, does funerals, weddings? Uh, could the reverend call on a certain family? We got, we got a cop who's dying of cancer. You, you couldn't pay for the contacts 
that you get if you reach out and start connecting with people. So I guess I would say biblically, <laughs> theologically, contemporarily, lots of reasons to, to serve in our community and to build relationships. If you do this seriously, 20% of your working time for one year, that's my golden rule, you will know the community better than everybody alive. And they'll all know you. That's the interesting part. I would start with the church, and then I go to the social agencies and into the businesses in that order. And just uh, walk around, minister, walk about. Pick a definable area around your community and then begin to love it in the name of Jesus. Uh-huh. And uh, as a pastor, I had Isaiah 40:11 mentioned the two arms of God, his strong arm rules, and then he will gently lead those who are with young, the tough and tender arms of God. Put one arm around your church and put the other one around your neighborhood. Uh-huh. And live out of two images. One, you're a pastor, but the other is you're a chaplain to everything that goes on in that neighborhood. Just, it's a calling. You're not the pastor in a church, in a neighborhood. You're pastor of a church for a neighborhood, okay? The prepositions change everything. You're not running the clubhouse anymore. It's a go church rather than a come church. One final word, and I'm sorry I'm taking so long. Um, When you ask people who they are in a city, they don't tell you who they are. What do they tell you? What they, do. what they do. Which means you'll never get to know your people if you go to their home. You have to go to their workplace. And in a city, that means getting clearance and tech clearance. But I would, I made a point to do that in each parish I was in. I went to, when I started here in Seattle, I had to get clearance to go into Boeing. They were making 707s and B-52s in those days. And, and the people respected it. And I I would say to them this, you're my missionary in this building. I visited my members in their school where they were teaching or in their uh, business where they worked. And I said, this is your calling. I said, do you you maybe have five people you know first first names? Could you tell me what a basic human each, each one has? Could I help you pick one person in your office who has one problem and you're going to minister to that person. Evangelism is scratching people where they itch in the name of Jesus. That's simple definition. Can I help you reach out? And so if you have a small church of 100, you have 400 worlds because every member has a biological world of family, a geographical world of neighbor, a vocational world of work, and a recreational world of play. And if you start thinking about building relationships and ghost structures, I think you'll also reach out much more effectively. So those are some of the things I would say about helping us uh, reach. Before Albert and Sebastian weigh in, let me just remind you guys that Ray is speaking tonight. So if you know anyone who could leave now and show up by 7 o'clock, you might want to text them and have them join us tonight. Uh, Albert, Sebastian, what can you add to that? Not much, obviously, and I hope this was recorded. Um, thank you, sir. That's yeah. very edifying. And I, I'm in a city that has a lot, like our, all of a sudden, a lot of history. And uh, when we began our church, I went back to my little history. I was an actor, and uh, I, we rented a space, which was a, 
theater and dance hall rehearsal space that belonged to the city of Montreal. And they would rent that to us $8 an hour. And we were surrounded with artists that would come and see, what are you guys doing? And you know, we were massaging by saying, we're doing a, a time of, of thinking about faith and art, which was true. I was an actor turned pastor. And, uh, and then after a few months, they saw that new people were coming every Sunday. And they said, that's nah, not quite uh, a, a closed group, is it? We would invite you to move on. But we have, we, you know, we have used that space that belonged to the city to, to try to reach out to the Montrealers of the day. Then after that, we went to the Salvation Army, an 800-seat auditorium in the middle of the city, which was full of history, you know, 100-year, 120-year history. And we were about 40 of us then. But we had that vision of using that space and then inviting, and we did concerts in that space. Also, the idea of that, that sacred space Later on, in a, and I, I don't want to go through a long list, but in a library, which was another place, an old library, where, where again, people from all over the neighborhood would come. And one of the things that we would say, you know, there's 40,000 books in the Atwater Library. Come and study the one that can change your life. And some of the people from the library would show up in our space. After that, an Anglican church, seven years, an old, 100-year-old Anglican church, and then after that, we thought, that's it. In the, in the end, that place was falling apart. It was great. It was being used by homeless during the week. We had a connection with the homeless all throughout the week, but then eventually that place became unusable. And we thought, what are we going to do? Go in a sports center? Go back to, I don't know, a nondescript space? But in that same heart that you're mentioning about sacred space, I thought, we got to work with other churches that are in here like you guys are doing. I really, I think that's, that's key. And so now we're in another Anglican church, larger. And, and, and the man who is there, and he wanted me to share that with you, that, by the way, the, the, the pastor, has a heart for saving those buildings. And he has this outstanding church right downtown Montreal. It's like a mini cathedral. And we're using it for dirt cheap. And it's just behind a major Montreal University, Université Concordia, Concordia University, where there's thousands of students. And that gentleman was saying, you know, we, and he's an Anglican, somewhat liberal, you know, very, very sweet, passionate, and his goal is to save those buildings around Canada and the U.S. And he's challenging us as evangelical to eventually buy some of those churches, some of the smaller ones and some of the bigger ones we can't afford, of course. But I'm renting with them. And so I'm, we're working with the Anglicans, which is very interesting, having those discussions about theology, about how to do outreach to the city, and how we can collaborate together. Um, and then I'm working with the Baptists in my city. There's no other Calvary chapels for hours on end. And so the Baptists and myself have been collaborating. And all these traditional, all these historical faiths that have gone before me, I, you know, not to come there with the attitude that the young Calvaryites have anything on these guys. They have been there a long time. They have been faithful. Um, I think it's important to know that the space in the city, and I think for me that, that really moves me among, among many things that you've said, but the spaces that we use are really key. To, to not hide away to not pull away, to be in the downtown, in those sacred spaces. And of course, uh, 
And eventually we become, you know, we know the Holy Spirit dwells inside all of us, all these students, all these youngsters that go back in their universities, in their cafes, in their jobs, like you're saying, they're all bringing out the gospel into the world. But when they come in the church, like a place like this, in a neighborhood like this, uh, it has a tremendous impact. And it's interesting, across the street from that large church that we are using is one of the largest police stations in Montreal. There's no such thing as chaplaincy in Quebec. It doesn't exist. They don't know what that is. In the army, in the Canadian army, with the, the, uh, the um, Protestant background of the Canadian army, but the, the French Canadian police, pff, they once were Catholic, now they've refused and pushed everything away. But interestingly enough, we have a man in our church who was a cop or a detective for 30 years. He's just retiring, and now we're trying to make headway to get in the police station. And we're meeting with the, the union representative, some of the boss from the police. And they, you know what? The guys in Montreal, they have the police chief, the union representative, they said, what is a chaplain? What's a pastor? They have no idea. And we're starting from scratch trying to build those bridges because I completely agree that's how we're going to have an impact in our neighborhood. Not to, not to hide away in our beautiful churches, like a beautiful place in a beautiful neighborhood or our little cathedral on St. Catherine, but to be out. And that's not easy. The world wants to keep you in the church. That's what I found back in Montreal. You can exist and you can have the tax exemption temporarily as long as you stay within your walls. The idea is to get out of the walls. One of the things that we do to have an impact in the neighborhood is we have a Bible club, whatever you want to call it. It's called Le Club du Rocher, the Club of the Rock. And we have a, you rent a community center to go out of the church in a, in, a, in a neighborhood that is challenged a bit financially, just down the hill from our nice cathedral. And, uh, we, um, and we have Muslim kids, we have uh, Buddhist kids, we have atheist kids, and their parents that send those kids every other Fridays to come and listen to stories, play games, and then we try to invite those people back into the walls of the church or to share the gospel with them. But that's a battle. It's a battle to get out of the walls. Uh, go ahead. I, I like what you said about using the arts. Um, maybe you know this. The um, first gift of the Holy Spirit mentioned in the entire Bible is an art committee. Amen. Exodus 31. A holy ab and Bezalel were gifted by the Spirit to design a beautiful worship center, the tabernacle in the wilderness. And the best commentary on that uh, whole question, why do the poor who are unemployed for 40 years in a desert, nobody has a job, why do they need a beautiful worship space? Mm -hmm. Martin Luther, whose congregation had manure on their boots, has, I think, the best commentary on this. And uh, Gordon Rupp, a Luther scholar, has a footnote on Luther's comment on this, which is, the poor need beauty as much as they need bread Amen. because they live in ugliness. Amen. Amen. Okay? The arts are critical. The creation is so scarred and, and uh, impacted in a slump Amen. that a beauty, a, uh, the first sign of the spirit might be to plant get a little garden. Mm -hmm. and, and I remember a church that did a plant and they, they the pastor said to me, we have one child in Sunday school, and we went out and planted a, a little flower in front of the church. Mm -hmm. That was the Sunday school class, and they talked about why. And this lady said, I want the community as they go by to know there's 
new life in this church. Amen. And it was going to be one little flower that was popping up. This is, this is the art impulse. Amen. You were created to be creative. Amen. And so the arts are critical for communicating in a, in a space like a city. Amen. And if you use a Walmart type of setting or a, 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 you know, a storefront, which is fine, but you lose that. I mean, with those buildings, the buildings that we're using right now is 163 years old. You go in there, even if we don't say a thing, if there's no music, and we're not that good of preaching or in music, but people come in there and they're awed at the beauty. And these men, 153 years old, they build that for the glory of God. It is an art. And, you know, we try to do modern evangelical art, and it often tends to be cheesy or little dramas. and With all due respect, I was an actor, and I'm like, I'm not going to touch that because... The Cirque du Soleil or my people do art much better than I could on a quick Sunday thing. So I look at that, look at that uh, stained glass window and listen to a song about the Lord Christ. And it is like being at the Everest. You know, it's, it's generating beauty in itself. And so I do encourage us. And at that library was a secular space, but it was beautiful. And people would walk in the first thing and say, wow, what a great place to worship. Surrounded with books. So I don't want to be materialist, but I think it is sacred. Those places are sacred, and to bring the gospel, gospel back, and of course a lot of these churches have lost their first love. We know that some churches have, though they have beautiful space, they've become so liberal that they've abandoned some of the gospel truths. You mentioned, too, the Salvation Army, and it, it triggered this. If you want to read a good book on urban ministry, read William Booth's In Darkest England, The Way Out. Background of that story is that um, Charles Stanley, who was, uh, not Charles Stanley. Um, William Booth. Um, no, David Livingston's friend, Stanley, who found him, remember, uh, in, in Africa. Uh, Stanley wrote this book called In Darkest Africa, The Way In. And it was the white man's burden to go save far off Africa. And it was really an end run around zip codes here at home that we don't want to deal with. And William Booth was so incensed by that book that within six months he had produced the answer to In Darkest Africa, The Way, out, the way In was In Darkest England, The Way Out. Mm -hmm. It is an expose of what was going on in the cities of London, Sheffield, and, and, um, and Call to the Church. They're published in 1890. These two books back to back. These are almost parallel what's happened in America too. The evangelicals have been great about evangelizing faraway places, doing an end run around urban neighborhoods they don't like mm -hmm. and don't want to deal with. Um, and I think it, to some extent we're going countercultural to that tradition by, by getting involved in the city. Mm -hmm. But you should know that um, Booth the, and and actually, the, the rescue mission here in Seattle, we've got a phenomenal rescue mission. And um, Jeff Lilly leads it. Rescue missions began in Glasgow in 1826 by a guy who was concerned about the shipbuilding industry and so on. And, and then a few years later, William Booth and then Charles Williams invented the YMCA. These three movements were invented in England, uh, all to reach the city and to reach men in the city. Uh, and they're all struggling to stay alive, and some of them are still very strong. 
But I think if you're going to be in the urban ministry setting, you really should know about the people who came before you Amen. in the urban ministry settings. Amen. And, and you make, it, make it your your pastime to become knowledgeable about the institutions like Salvation Army, Rescue Missions, YMCA's, because they were here long ago. D.L. Moody and John Armand thought you could reach the world for Christ if you put a YMCA in every city. That was an outgrowth of the evangelical movement in the 19th century, the Northfield Conferences, and was based on what Abraham and Lot were about. Mm. God, if there are 10 men in the city who trust you, would you spare the city? And so the YMCA movement was an attempt to reach at least 10 men in every city uh, based on that. And now the YMCA has gone far afield from that today, as you well know. But some Ys are getting in touch with their history. The German Y, for example. And the Hong Kong Y actually plants churches now. Interesting. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, and inside China, uh, the YMCA's and Shanghai YMCA um, doing phenomenal urban ministry and they're evangelical and the director did his doctorate with me so I know that one very well. So don't give up on these history, inst is these institutions. Uh, they were here before you and you know them when they're weak. You should go find out when they were strong, what they were doing and, and, and keep reminding their contemporary leaders, oh by the way, I read about your history. Yeah, can, can I take my shoes off? You're on sacred ground here for me to be in your presence. I mean, it's, I'm over-dramatizing it. But that I'm trying to make a point that in God's economy, we all have a time and space. Mm -hmm. and, and they served well, and now they're all wounded, and they're liberal or whatever. Uh, but, but don't give up on them. Absolutely. Uh, I, I honestly think that's the fun of being pastor in this city. I think well, that's a really helpful thing for us to recognize with a Calvary Chapel background because, you know, Chuck was always adamant that God's going to do whatever he wants to do. And so he had this paradigm of the new wineskin. And that's clearly what Calvary Chapel was. It was completely out of nowhere. But the majority of revivals, even the ones that Chuck constantly pointed to, came out of historical places, yes. churches that had existed for a long time and dried out or whatever. And, um, Today in our atmosphere of Calvary Chapel, that's good news for us because I don't know where we're headed, but there's a potential future that looks dry and dark, yes. but it's not an end. It's never been an end. No. Sorry, go ahead. Just a comment about this is the, the captain uh, and his wife from the Salvation Army in Montreal where we rented, we had a great report and he was excited to see young people in his building and we, uh, and I, just like that, I could say, sir, you've been here for years and you're serving God well. And we were really feeding off each other. And same thing with the Anglicans right now. Though theologically, we definitely don't agree on everything. But we can agree on, on being in the city right now. And, uh, and, and they look at us as young Calvary guys. And they say, wow, you guys are really believing that you can plant churches in downtown cities and so I think it's an exciting collaboration uh, to work with historical uh, groups like that. Absolutely. Alex, we've taken all your time. Sorry. Albert, <laughs> please, please help us. Albert, yeah. I don't, I don't even know what to say. Uh, <coughs> I, um, as far as churches, I, I strongly believe in churches and, and our place. I think the, one of the dangers that we face is that our churches tend to be only on Sunday. 
And so we need to be creative in how we um, make churches seven days a week. So one of the one of the things that we've attempted to do is um, let's use our refugee ministry as an example, uh, providing ESL classes, providing citizenship classes, and providing vocational classes. And in the vocational classes, we in the past we partnered with Chipotle prior to all their scandals, <coughs> and um, we actually had a group of people that um, really gained some respect from Chipotle management and they flew over to our community center and the people that helped do this, they essentially made up a Chipotle inside of our community center and had them run through the Chipotle manual. And so a lot of the Chipotles in the Bay Area actually came out of our refugee ministry and a lot of the managers and the workers and all that kind of stuff came out of there. What challenged us though, challenged us though and what uh, had us change to coffee was actually in ministering to them, finding out that um, there was a, a huge Muslim population uh, from Afghanistan, Bhutan, and all the stand countries that didn't want to deal with Chipotle because it dealt with pork. And so we had to be really mindful about how do we not offend these people and look for different avenues? And so our refugee folks, ministry folks, got to thinking and put their heads together and they came up with the idea of coffee and tea because what culture does not drink coffee or tea? And then they didn't have to deal with pork and they didn't have to deal with alcohol. And so it really opened up a wide breadth of how to reach people. And so now uh, we, opened, we partnered up with the Presbyterian Church in Berkeley to open up a cafe and I'm talking now with those founders and the board about opening up one in Oakland. And so uh, we're partnering with them that, and, and hopefully in our community center so that it's seven days a week. Our community center is used every night, but during the day we don't have the staffing for that to happen. And so I'm also talking with a friend, Andrew Park, about doing a basketball league in our community center. So it's uh, every day a week thing, as opposed to like Sunday's our big thing and then during the week, you have to come to the office. And yeah. I, I, I've been saying for years, uh, in a city, we have to go 24-7. We, we honestly have to have night pastors now, as well as day pastors. South Lake Union, Paul Allen's playground, is going to be a 24-hour computerized community. It, this is the new reality. The computers, the computers are going uh, all the time, and there will be staffs at night. Uh, the night workers of a city mean they sleep days. Um, church in Orlando had services f Saturday. They had seven services, a mega church. And um, I spoke there one weekend, and the last service was Monday night. I said, Monday night, what's that? Oh, Disney. The target was Disney. Uh, all the Disney workers work weekends. So Monday night was targeted to them. Um, and this is um, target audiences, I think, is something we have to think creatively about. And supermarkets have done it. Um, They're 24-7 in most cities now, and they have all kinds of ethnic foods. Um, I think if, if I send my students into a supermarket and ask, 7-Eleven had this great idea. It was open early as 7 and stay awake till 11 to sell food. And everybody said, no, that'll never work. 7-Eleven is passe now. Mm -hmm. 
um, because supermarkets have all gone that way. Um, police departments are 24-7 and hospitals. Trauma centers are 24-7. So I think the church has to take a creative look at the night city and the day city and, um, and adapt. Uh, also, I take my students down to Pike Place Market. I've been doing it for years. Um, Pike Place is a, is a maverick mall. That's what that genre of mall is called. Maverick Mall, uh, Inner Harbor, Baltimore, Faneuil Hall, Boston, Underground Atlanta, Pike Place Market are described in a, a book by two MIT professors, Miller and Martzik, called uh, Downtown Inc., How America Rebuilds Cities. That smelly old fish market is the number one tourist attraction in the city and it's transforming Third Avenue, big time. It used to be all X-rated uh, porno shops and it's now the heart of the city. That smelly old fish market has been the engine of downtown renewal, as everybody knows. It's everybody's favorite place. It's, it was designed to include diversity from the scratch. There are about 16 principles that go into how to do that. And they've been written up and I, I send my students in and I, it's a nice exercise. I ask them how many of those principles they can identify and then I say, now what would you, I want you to go in again for another hour. Come out and tell me, what would your church look like mm. if you were as serious as this mall about including diversity? And it's a fun way to exegete what a, what a neighborhood church could look like in this kind of a city. So, I, you know, the, the business people are spending millions to figure out how to do these things. And so if we're in an inner city area, these are things we, we can look at. These are, there are tools here for us. And uh, if you study conducting, my wife's a musician, there's no one way to conduct a symphony. So usually a major symphony will have principal guest conductors who are very different from the full-time conductor because the disciplines of, of leading a diverse orchestra are so unique that you, you need more than one style of leadership to bring out the full uh, gifts of an orchestra, a major orchestra. Um, I watched Michael Jordan in Chicago his whole career. Um, the head coach didn't coach. Phil Jackson was a vision caster. The position coaches coached Michael. Um, that's the same thing happening in athletic coaches. Uh, football. Head coaches don't coach anymore. Position coaches coach. Uh, clue for a church? Pastor might be a vision caster. Mm -hmm. the, the real ministry is going to go on in the position coaches. People who are dealing with trauma. People who are dealing with drugs. People who are dealing with uh, you name it. All the problems of the pluralism of city. Um, so I think the, these, these other professions are moving in ways if we study them, we can learn from them. Uh, they have a lot of wisdom and they're reaching people often that the church didn't reach. So that's, that's my suggestion there. Yeah. Um, I want to go ahead and close and uh, I'm going to assume that some of you agree with me with labeling what we just heard as intimidating simplicity. Uh, and so I just want to close with prayer because uh, there's, a, there's a lot of potential and possibility. I, I imagine there's lots of conviction in places where the Lord might be speaking to us. And so let's just take a moment. Um, and first we'll just start with a moment of, of quiet and then, and then we'll pray.